of Valley Bible Church. It is great to see you. So glad to be here with you. Thank you for joining us here on our online platform. We are excited to jump right into our series on the Gospel of John. We're in the second week of our series, and I want to jump right into where we left off. And I want to jump into one of the biggest surprises in the Gospel of John. One of the biggest conflicts, one of the biggest kind of uh, whiplash moments, if you will, when you read through the Gospel of John, there's just this reaction to Jesus that is just surprising, leaves you on edge, and just leaves you wondering a little bit. Right at the center of John's Gospel, in John chapter 11, Jesus does one of his most remarkable miracles. He raises a man from the grave, a man who's been dead for days. And the response, you would think, at this miraculous sight would be just utter belief. Thousands and millions maybe would hear of this and people would just come in these large groups and they would say, we must believe in you, Jesus. Now there is some response, positive response, to the resurrection of Lazarus from the grave. But then there's this shocking response. And the response from the religious leaders is, we have to kill this guy. We have to murder Jesus. We have to take care of him. He's a problem. Now, that should catch us totally off guard. This guy just raised somebody from the grave, and their response is, we got to kill this guy. You think that would be plenty of evidence to believe, plenty of evidence to convince them that everything that Jesus is saying is true. One of the most shocking elements in the Gospel of John is unbelief, is the rejection of Jesus. It's really hard to fathom Being a first century witness to the work and the ministry and the teaching and the miracles of Jesus. And to see such a large response of rejection. But we face the same kind of questions. Why is there belief and unbelief? Why do some see the same evidence that we see and believe or not believe? Why is there kind of this different response? If we're all looking at the same evidence, and I think there's a mountain of evidence to believe in the existence of God... And the truthfulness of the claims of Jesus Christ. If we're all looking at the same evidence, why do some believe and others not believe? Now you may be thinking, well, that's actually a very simple question. Why do some believe and some not believe? Well, it's their decision. It's, it's their choice. The, the answer lies in their will. It lies in them. What do they choose? You see, and John would say the same thing, but he would say more than that. And the biblical picture is more than that is going on. Yes, you are involved. Yes, you choose. In belief or unbelief, you're making a choice. You're moving, you're acting. But the Bible gives a fuller picture. John gives a fuller picture. What we'll see in our passage is John gives us a picture that something else is going on when it comes to belief. That it's not just us. It's not just us acting, us moving. But there's another person acting. There's another character, if you will. There's another partner in this decision, in this action of belief. It's not just us. It's also God. At the heart of our passage this morning, John is going to use an illustration of of a birth, a a physical birth. And what he's going to say is that belief is like a birth. It's like a birth moment. And, And if you've experienced anything like that, you know the baby is very much involved in the birthing process. But so too is the mom. I think it's a great analogy to explain that there is something supernatural and natural to belief. There is something that we do, but also something that God does. And this is the reason why we could all look at the same evidence and some believe and some not believe. Let's just jump right into our passage. John chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 6. 
But before we get to that passage, let me give you the big idea for this morning. The big idea that I think really summarizes John's teaching on belief. And it's very simple. It's only three words. So what I want want you to do is uh, take a pencil and maybe write this down in the margin of your Bible or on a piece of paper. Or maybe just take a, a, a text note on your phone. The big idea for this morning is this. Belief is born. Belief is born. Very simple big idea, but a very profound one. And I think what we're going to see is John, again, is going to unpack that something is happening in belief. It's a complex action. It's one that includes us, but also includes God. And it's the missing piece that we need. We need more than just evidence. We need to be born from above. Let me show you this. What John's going to do in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 18 He's going to give us this point, but he's going to do it in what I like to call an Oreo construction. We, we talked about this last week. This is one of, uh, of John's favorite kind of literary tools. What he likes to do is kind of make one point and, and then another point and then sandwich a point in between there. So if you think the chocolate, chocolate, then the vanilla. That middle layer is his point of emphasis. It, it, it's an ABA construction, or if you're like grammar or literature, it's a chiastic structure. I like to call it an Oreo structure. Uh, it's just a sweeter way to think about it. And that's what he does. He gives us this kind of Oreo. And most of what he's going to do is he's going to give us those first kind of big cookies, those first big points that kind of uh, underline and, and support that kind of middle part. And, and those two parts are about the evidence. He just wants to show us the overwhelming evidence there is for the truth claims of Jesus Christ. And he's just going to give them in this kind of compressed form right in his first chapter. And then in the middle of that, he's going to say, well, what's the response? What's the response to that evidence? And he'll give the responses of belief and unbelief. And that's where our big idea will be found, right there in the middle of our passage where he says belief is born. It is an act of God and an act of man. So let me, let me show this to you. Let's, let's get that first part of the cookie, that first piece of chocolate there. And this is the evidence for Jesus. And what John's going to do is he's going to compare Jesus to two figures. One is John the Baptist and the other is Moses. So the first one is a comparison To John the Baptist. And John is going to say that Jesus is better than John the Baptist. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is not John the gospel writer. This is John the Baptist. Called John the Baptist because one of his main ministry points was to baptize people. This is John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So here we have kind of the assignment and the description of this person who's come before Jesus. It says that he was a witness to the light. We know that Jesus is the light. We looked at that last week, that Jesus is the light and the life of men. He is the word made flesh. He is dwelling with us. And John's job was kind of the, the, the setup guy. He was the first act. If you've ever been to a, a comedy show or something like that, you have kind of the, the comedian who warms up the crowd and then the main guy comes. Think of it like that. It, it, it's the setup guy. He's the hype guy. He's getting everybody ready to listen to Jesus. That's his job. He's called the forerunner 
of Jesus Christ. That's who he is. But as great as he is, and he did very good, John shows that there's something different about Jesus than than there is to John the Baptist. In the first words, look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God. That word was has already been used before in this chapter. In the first verse, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Now, what John is doing, doing here, and we can't really see it in the English, is he's, he's using a, a kind of a play on words here. In English, these two was's are the same. When it says there was a man sent from John, and the word was with God, and the word was God, we read them as the same, but they're not the same. In the Greek, he's using two different terms. In verse 6, that word was means to come into being, means to be, to be born or to be created. It emphasizes something is, but there, there was a time when it was not. It, it came into being. That's not the was that John uses in verse 1 when he talks about the word, when he talks about Jesus. So the careful Greek reader would see that and say, wait a second, there's something different about Jesus and John. Jesus had no beginning. Jesus is the beginning of all things who has no beginning. He is the creator that was not created. He is the maker of all things who was never made. But John, John is different. John was made. There was a time when John was not, but there was never a time where Jesus was not. So right there, John is setting up this comparison. These two people exist in different ways. He also says that he was a light. He bore witness to Jesus. He was not the light, it says in verse 8. But what is John trying to show us here? He's saying, look, John the Baptist had a very important role. Again, like I said, he was the setup guy. He was the hype guy, the, the forerunner, getting everybody ready to listen to Jesus. And he did a very good job of that. Later on in the Gospels, Jesus would even say that John the Baptist is the greatest of the prophets ever born by a woman. What is he saying? I mean, this guy is the greatest, man. He's up there in the elite. He's on the Mount Rushmore of prophets. When God picks men to use, man, on the top of God's list is John the Baptist. That's what Jesus is saying. We know that John's popularity was actually really big. His following was pretty large, even after his death. We see that Paul, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, when he's journeying off, he finds a group of people who actually are more familiar with John the Baptist's teaching than they are with Jesus' teaching. But what does that show you? That, that John was very influential. He was, a, he was a, a, a dominant spiritual leader. He was great. But John, the gospel writer, says Jesus is head and shoulders above that. Even this great man that should be on the Mount Rushmore of prophets, this great leader, pales in comparison to what has happened in Jesus Christ. And John knew this himself. John the Baptist knew this himself. Uh, jump down in our passage. I want you to jump to verse 15. We're in the kind of second layer of that cookie, but it's good because it, it's speaking of John's testimony here. And John the gospel writer kind of inserts this in the middle here. But, but look at how John the Baptist looks at Jesus. This is what it says in verse 15. It says, John, John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, this was, of, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
Now, that doesn't sound too profound, right? He's saying, Jesus ranks before me. The one who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. But if you slow it down, it doesn't really make sense. Because how is Jesus before John? John just said, the one that comes after me. So Jesus came after. We know this when it comes to Jesus' public ministry. John was on the scene first. John the Baptist is the first one to get on the stage, the first one to address the crowd. He was the first one to get things started. Then Jesus came in. So when John says that Jesus was before him, it can't mean about his public ministry when that started. We also know it can't mean his age. He's not saying that Jesus is before him in the sense that he's older than him. That doesn't work either. The other gospel writers indicate to us that John the Baptist is actually six months older than Jesus. Okay, so how can Jesus be before John if John was born first and his public ministry was first? In what way was Jesus before John? I think what John the Baptist is doing is he's saying, I'm not talking about the humanity of Jesus. I'm not talking when, when Christmas came, when, when the Messiah was born, when Jesus was born. I'm not talking about his birthday. He was before me because he was God. I think it's a reference to everything we covered last week, that the word was in the beginning. And there never was a time when the word was not. The word has always existed because the word is God. Jesus is God. I think that's what John is doing. Is John is saying, he was before me because he is God. He has always existed before me. Yes, his humanity may have come after me. His public ministry may have come after me. But he has always been before me. So what has what John, the gospel writer, set up for us? Kind of that first cookie, that top layer. What he said so far is what? Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. John the gospel writer thinks so, as does John the Baptist. Jesus is greater. This should be evidence enough that, that the following of John the Baptist is going to pale in comparison to the following of Jesus. Now, John's going to do this again. Let's jump down to that second layer, kind of the, the bottom of the Oreo cookie there, the bottom chocolate uh, cookie. Look at verse 14. It says, the word became flesh, and it dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've read verse 15, so let's jump to verse 16. Verse 16, for from his fullness we all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. This little paragraph here is saturated with terms and words that are pointing back to the great Moses. His name is mentioned, but there's words everywhere to describe the kind of key moments of Moses' life. And what John is going to set up for us is he's going to show us that all the experiences of Moses, even Moses himself, pales in comparison to Jesus. And as John is going to use this as evidence to say, look, here is Jesus again, greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who was the greatest of prophets to come from a woman, right? The greatest of human prophets. Look, he's better than him. 
And then this great hero of the Jewish faith, Moses, John is going to say, Jesus is greater than even him. He's trying to show the evidence. He's, he's setting up the shocking conclusion that why is there unbelief? Look at how much evidence there is. Now, if you're not familiar with Moses, Moses was the great Old Testament hero who led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and then he brought them all the way to the edge of the promised land. He didn't get them all the way in there, but he got to the edge, and they would later go in there. Think of Moses as the Jewish Abraham Lincoln, if you will. Abraham Lincoln, you may not know this, but has the greatest popularity rating amongst Americans. No figure has a higher rating, a positive rating, than Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln actually beats Jesus Christ, according to American polls, and Santa Claus. Abraham Lincoln is just that high. That's kind of the same idea that's happening to our first century Jewish readers. When they see the term Moses, they think, this is our champion. Uh, This is the guy who, who brought our forefathers out of Egypt. This is the one who God used to break the back of the world power of the day in Egypt to free us from our bondage of slavery. And then he not only did that, not only did he give us victory, he saw us through the wilderness, a time of testing, a time of trial, a time of suffering. He brought us all the way out of that and brought us to the land of milk and honey. Moses was that dominant figure. To speak against Moses would be a high sin. Moses was even used by God to author the first five books of the Bible. This guy has accolade after accolade after accolade. I mean, he would be with John the Baptist on the Mount Rushmore of prophets. Moses was seen as a great, great leader. But what John's gonna do is he's gonna show how Jesus is even better than Moses. Look at his first verse in our paragraph in verse 14. He hints at it right away. It said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, again, we got to go a little deeper here than the English will allow us to. This word to, to dwell among us means to make a tent with us, to set up your tent and to dwell with people. Now, what is John, the gospel writer, trying to do? He, he doesn't want to uh, get his readers to think of their most favorite camping trip. That's not the point here. The point is they would know in their history there was a great tent, a tent in which not they dwelt in, but God dwelt in. God dwelt in their presence. You see, when God moved his people out of Egyptian slavery, he wanted to be with them. He wanted to travel with them to the promised land. And so God wanted this kind of focal point of a a, a place, a sacred place where his glory could dwell. And so God gives Moses these incredibly detailed instructions. And he says, here's how it's going to work. I want you to to get craftsmen who are greatly skilled to make this extravagant kind of uh, tent. And I'm going to show up and I'm going to dwell with my people. And my people are going to know that I'm right there with them. I am their God and they are my people. And Moses does this. Moses is a part of this. He delivers the instructions. Everything is built. You see, but John is saying more than just a a sacred place has been introduced. Now there is a sacred person. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is not just a tent. 
A, a beautiful, extravagant, wonderful, marvelous tent, yes. A sacred space, yes. But now there is a sacred person. There is Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now God is with his people as one of his people. This is greater than any experience of Moses. Any instructions given through Moses. John uses it another word. It says, the word became flesh. I'm in verse 14. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. Now, this term glory. He uses right after the verb of, of dwelling with to make a tent with. It's very interesting. Because this is exactly kind of how the story unfolds for Moses. Moses gets these wonderful instructions from God, this incredible blueprint, if you will, and he constructs this temple, or this, this, this tabernacle, which would be kind of a precursor to the, the, the main temple, to David's temple, to Solomon's temple. And so after he constructs this temple, or, or sorry, this tent, it's, you get this sense of anticipation, especially if you read it uh, in the Old Testament, because there's so many rules and there's so many descriptions. And, and you finally get to the point where, hey, everything is finally done. And here's what happens is God's glory moves off the mountain, moves off of Mount Sinai, and dwells in the tent in such a dense cloud that Moses can't even come in. It's really, honestly, kind of anticlimactic when you read it in the Old Testament. Because we've been waiting for this moment to God, for God to dwell with his people in an intimate way. For him to descend from the mountain and be in the midst of his people. And when the, 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 the tent is finally complete, Moses can't even get in. Because God's glory cloud is so incredibly dense. What a magnificent experience that Moses had, that the people of God had. But more so... Has something happened here? This is not glory of an impersonal cloud filling a tent. This is the glory of the person of the Son of God from the Father. This is not an impersonal cloud. This is a, a person. This is something we can relate to. Someone we could speak to. Someone we can talk to. Again, he is in the flesh. We move from sacred space to a sacred person. We move to this impersonal cloud to one we can relate to. Do you see what he's doing? Every time he brings up an allusion to Moses, he's just showing how Jesus trumps that. Evidence upon evidence upon evidence. And he keeps going. Jump down to verse 16. For from his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace. It's a very interesting phrase in the Greek. It's really actually hard to translate what that means, grace upon grace, because it, it almost can be translated as grace instead of grace, or grace supplanting or replacing grace. So it almost sounds like a, a step process, if you will. Step one, step two, this grace, but now there is another grace. And I think that's the best way for us to understand it because of the next verse in verse 16. We see kind of this step tier and it makes sense with everything that John so far has mentioned about Moses. All he's trying to do is, again, show how Jesus one-ups Moses and one-ups John the Baptist. So look what he says in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. This is a grace. The law was a grace. There's, there's no negative appraisal of the law here. The law was a grace. It was a blessing. It was a good thing. 
the, the, the law and God's instructions in the Old Testament were a blueprint and a plan for human flourishing. If they followed those rules, they would flourish as a society. Now, we know the rest of the story unfolds, and we cannot meet that law. Because of our sinful nature, humanity cannot meet the requirements of the law. But that's not on the law's fault. That's a mark against us. We can't make it. But look, now there is another grace. This grace that came but could not do what it wanted to do because of us, a new grace has come. Look at what he says about Christ. Moses, it says, verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is the grace upon grace. We know as we zoom out from this passage and the rest of the Gospel of John and the rest of the New Testament, the grace of Jesus Christ is that he forgives us of the guilt that comes upon us because of the law. The law was supposed to and intended to be a blessing, but it showed us our faults, our failures. It didn't show us how to succeed. Rather, it showed us our need our deep need for forgiveness, our deep need of guilt. And Jesus Christ has come and through his death and resurrection can free us from that guilt and on top of that can give us new power to live according to the law. He can give us a new spirit that allows us now to obey. This is the grace upon grace. You see what he did there? As great as Moses was, the deliverer of the commandments, the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments of the Old Testament. The great leader who did a great work, who was obedient. Jesus Christ is more. Evidence upon evidence upon evidence. And then John is going to take his argument to the, to the climax. It, he's going to put like sprinkles on top of the Oreo cookie right now. He's just going to show, he's just going to kind of just blow the lid off here. Greater than John the Baptist, greater than Moses. And look what he says in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Again, another reference to Moses' experience. Moses at one point asked God, I want to see you. We're told that, that Moses had a very unique relationship with God. It said in the Old Testament that Moses would speak to God or God would speak to Moses as a friend speaks to a friend. Kind of this face-to-face -face kind of dynamic. Something that was very unique when it comes to God and his prophets. Something very unique. But even that unique uh, interaction and experience that Moses had had its limits. Because Moses asked, God, I want to see you. And what happens is this experience happens where, where Moses is kind of hidden and God passes by. And Moses indirectly sees the presence of God passing by. But God tells him, you can't see me. Because if you saw me, it's too intense. It's like flying into the sun. It's, it's too hot. It's too intense. It'll, it'll burn you up. You cannot take it. I must protect you from my presence because my holiness is just burning hot. It is so pure. It is so righteous, so just. There is no darkness in me. So even the little glimpse of impurity, if it gets close to me, will be burned up by the intensity of my holiness. You can't see me. Moses, if you saw me, you'd die. That's what God says. But look at Jesus. Jesus does not need to indirectly see God. 
It says, no one has seen God, not Moses, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus has a full gaze of the glory of the Father. He could stand right in the center of the Father's holiness and not be consumed. And why is that? That climactic sentence there says it very clearly. No one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. The reason Jesus can gaze at God the Father is because he is God the Son. Man, you, you, you can feel the tension building here. You can see the, the Oreo kind of cookie being built here. It seems so incredibly clear Evidence upon evidence. What more can he say? Even in this condensed little paragraph. Now it's going to unfold the miracles of Jesus. The resurrections that Jesus does. The resurrection of himself. And yet there is this response of rejection. A response of unbelief. We see the responses. Look at the middle of our Oreo cookie. The vanilla here. This is the main point. This is where we get our big idea that belief is born. Look at the responses to the great evidence that Jesus is putting forward, that his claims are true, that he is God, that he is divine, greater than John the Baptist, greater than Moses. He is God, very God. And what's the response to this clear revelation from Jesus? Look at verse 9, the middle of our Oreo cookie here. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Here's the shocking part. This is where we kind of have whiplash here. How can this be true? I love how John sets it up again. He says the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. It it would be like the Mona Lisa... if she could speak, denying the existence of Leonardo da Vinci. It would be like Pinocchio denying Geppetto. The the creature denying its creator. How can that be? How, How can all of this be without a creator, without a designer? Chaos can't bring about all of this structure, all of this complexity. We we know this in in in, in basic reasoning. Our tornado can't slam through Home Depot, and in its wake, create a housing track. Chaos does not create. Chaos does not design. And yet there is more structure in the simplest of our cells than there is in the structure of your own home. But you would would be foolish to say, if you looked at your house, man, that tornado, what a perfect structure. Four bedroom, three bath, I'm glad he put that together for me. No, you know that somebody has used a hammer and nails and some wood and other things. That they have carefully crafted that structure. And yet there is complexity all over creation. Everywhere, evidence after evidence after evidence. And I would say not just in spite of evidence, but against the evidence, creation and much of humanity has rejected its creator, has rejected Christ. John gets very specific after this, kind of this broad stroke rejection. He speaks of the whole world, but then he narrows it down to a very specific group. Look again at verse 12. 
No, sorry, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. I think what he's doing is he's narrowing his focus here. He's not just talking about the world, the broad kind of stroke here. What he's doing is he's, he's being very specific. He's talking about the Jewish people. Now think about what they have that the world does not have. They have the prophets. The, the world has creation, has the, the, just the, the beautiful tapestry of God's handiwork, the complexity that surrounds all of us. Right? Just even the idea that we live in a life-permitting universe, and then beyond that, a life-permitting solar system, and a life-permitting planet, and even on that life-permitting planet, in a life-permitting solar system, in a life-permitting universe, life actually happens. The occurrence of all those things is beyond reasonable uh, probability by chance. It, it, it doesn't, it's the, the odds are astronomical. It's not just winning the lottery. It'd be like winning the lottery every day of your life for 100 years. The probability is too large to just be by chance. All of creation has that display. They have that evidence before them. We have uh, our conscience. We know there's a moral compass inside of us, that there is right and wrong, that the Nazis were wrong. They didn't just lose, right? There's an objective standard that says, no, what Nazi Germany did was wrong. It's not that they just lost the war. If they would have won, they still would have been wrong. Morality and right and wrong aren't subjective opinions of men. But if we only ground our, our, our reasoning of right and wrong in ourselves, then, then we can't say that the Nazis are wrong. We can only say that they lost. But we know that's not true. We know there's a standard, a standard that says that's wrong no matter if they believe it or not. If they win or they lose, that's wrong. How do we know that? The Bible says that's been embedded in all of creation. There's a conscience, a, a, a standard of right and wrong. We all, we all have this. But the Jews had more than this. They had the prophets. They had Moses. They had the miracles. They had these wonderful displays of God's power. And yet what? They don't believe. He comes to his creation. Steps into his handiwork. Steps on dirt he created. And man at large rejects him. Steps to his own people who should have anticipated him, should have been waiting for him, should have been looking for him, should have seen him in the pages of scriptures given by God's prophets, and yet they reject him. Why is there unbelief? John points the finger at no one but us. Us. The reason there's unbelief is because of us. It's because of our sinful nature, because of our rebellion. But unbelief is not a complex decision. There are not partners in unbelief. There is one person acting in unbelief, and that's us. But then John switches it a little bit here. He, he takes a turn. If we read the rest of scriptures, the, the real surprise is not that there's unbelief. The real surprise is that there's belief. It's because our sinful nature and our bondage to sin is so incredibly strong that our only response would be one of unbelief. The real surprise is that any believe. Well, why do they believe? Look at what John says at the very center of our Oreo cookie here, verse 13. Sorry, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Here we go. Here's the first partner in the complex decision of belief. And who is it? It's us. We believe. It says we receive Two terms describing kind of one action here. 
It's not that these, these, these terms don't describe that we have received information, that we comprehend something, but there's a starting of a relationship. These are relationship terms, not just informational terms. We have believed, we have received, we believe in his name, we receive his teaching. We receive the idea of who he is, that he says that he's God. Okay, but if we stop there, we would miss John's main point here. We would miss the big idea that belief is born. It's a complex decision that has partners in it. There's a human side, our side. We act, we move, we believe, we trust, we receive. But there's another person acting. Look at verse 13. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. Notice what he does there. You can feel that this is kind of the the climactic moment of the passage. He stacks these negative statements. He says, it is not of this, not of this, not of this, not born of blood, not born of the will of flesh, not born of the will of man, but of God. What is he saying there? Well, he kind of rifles off these three terms, and these three terms are really the ancient world's understanding of um, sexual activity. It says first, not born of blood. The idea is that in the ancient world, they believe that the mixing of bloods is how life was created. And it says the will of the flesh. That's the idea of the uh, passion, right? Romantic, intimate passion. The will of men, I think, is better translated as the will of the husband. It's the same word. And I think in the context, it makes better sense because in the ancient world, the man was seen as the uh, romantic initiator, Now, what is he saying here? He's saying, I don't want you guys to even imagine of this as as a natural birth. This is not a natural birth. And that's why he stacks up those three negations. That's why he puts those statements there. This is not normal. This is not just of us. Who is it of? He says it is of God. God moves. God acts. God does something in us, What John does for us here is he kind of pulls back the curtain, if you will. He allows us to peer into the supernatural dynamic and dimension of our belief. And I know from our experience and I know from our thinking, we often think that belief is just us. If we just give enough evidence, if we just see enough evidence, belief will happen. And, and that is partially true, that we are involved. This isn't a, a either or kind of idea. It is a both and, and we must be very balanced in that. We do believe, we do receive, but we are in need of a birth. Belief is birth. God must do something. If he leaves us on our own, all of the evidence will only be responded by unbelief. All of the evidence will not move our heart. Even if we saw a dead man come back to life, we would not believe. We would persist in unbelief only if God acts, God moves, God births something in us, do we believe. Now, what does that mean for me and you this week? All right, in your day-to-day, what does that mean for Monday through Saturday till you come back here again on Sunday? My encouragement to you is to embrace the supernatural nature of your belief. Embrace the supernatural nature 
of your belief. Understand that belief is born. Yes, you're involved. But there's another involved as well. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what does that mean for you? It means you are not solely responsible for the integrity and the strength of your faith. You are not solely responsible for the degree, for the stamina, for the vitality of your faith. You are partially responsible, but there is another. You have a partner. And I encourage you, call out for help. One of my favorite prayers in the scriptures is uttered by a father, a father who has a a demon-possessed son who is uh, incredibly sick. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, he runs to Jesus in just utter despair at his wit's end, if you will. And look at what he says. Every time I've read this, every time I've prayed it, it, it makes me weep because I feel it so much. I feel like I am this man running to Jesus with nowhere else to look but in him, but being vulnerable, humble, and honest with where I am and the strength of my faith. Look at this, Mark chapter 9, verse 24. It says this, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Oh, I love that. I love how the scriptures are just so incredibly honest and vulnerable with the balance of belief and unbelief. That it's not just one or the other. It's not just black and white. You're not just a perfect believer or a perfect unbeliever, right? You're not just perfect and sinless and not vulnerable and incredibly strong. Or you're just no belief in God, utter rebel. There, There is not this kind of pull out, this opposite here. Different poles, right? It's not that dynamic. But there's a balance, there's a tension that we all feel. We have all had moments where we believe, but there is also unbelief. Right, I know many of you, as Larry said, many of you have already participated in the survey that we gave out. We wanted to know how you were doing, spiritually, emotionally, financially. And we, I mean, there were many of you that interacted with that, hundreds of you that interacted with that survey, and we're so incredibly thankful that you did that. And I'd appreciate if you continue to do that. You find it on our website in the app as well. But what I saw there was I know you're anxious. I know you're stressed about your finances and about your health. I know you feel isolated, and you want to be here, and I want to be here. And I want to be with you. And you want to be with me. And we want to be with each other. And I know it's hard. But friend, you are not solely responsible for the strength and the integrity of your faith. There is another. Another that you could look up to and say, Father, I believe. But help my unbelief. Because I'm surrounded And I'm overwhelmed, and water is getting in the boat, and I'm sinking. I know when I was in my mid-20s, I remember praying a prayer like this. I had experienced a deep loss of someone I deeply, deeply loved, and um, it ruined me. It was the lowest point uh, I've ever experienced spiritually ever experienced spiritually, I, I just kind of quit. 
I, I, I quit going into work. I was studying, getting my Master's of Divinity in Louisville, Kentucky, and I decided I'm not going to school anymore. I didn't want to read my Bible anymore. I didn't want to pray anymore. I didn't want to see my friends anymore. I mean, it was bad. I was at a very, very, very low point, and it was the deepest pain I'd ever felt in my life. And I remember, and I'm going to tell you what I prayed, and you may think less of me as a pastor after I tell you what I prayed, but I'm just going to be vulnerable, and I'll be honest with you. I'm just going to, I'm going to give it to you like the man gave to Jesus. I remember being on my bathroom floor in tears. And I remember saying to God, if you want me to love you, you're going to have to put that love in my heart. Because all that's in here for you is hatred. Now I say that and and that hurts me that I would ever say that to God. But I was vulnerable and I was hurt and I was depressed and I was down. And in that moment, right after I prayed that prayer, God in his mercy, in his compassion, in, in, in a gracious way, in a supernatural way, God did something in my heart. I believe, but help my unbelief. And God answered that prayer. He put love for him back in my heart. It is so wonderful to know that the integrity of your faith, the degree of your faith, the strength of your faith is not solely weighing on your shoulders. But God is there to lift you up as well. So friend, embrace the supernatural nature of your faith. Realize that faith is born. Yes, you are involved. Yes, keep reading your Bible, keep praying, but realize there is another character and he is incredibly strong and he could see you all the way through. Pray that prayer this week. I believe, Lord help my unbelief. Now, maybe you're watching this and you're listening to this and, and you're not yet a Christian. You want to call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, right? You're, you're here and you're listening, which I have to tell you, I am incredibly honored that you would allow me to speak into your spiritual journey. I do not take uh, that lightly. I want you to know that. I, I want you to pray that prayer too. I believe, help my unbelief. I, I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're thinking to yourself as you walk through this, man, these, these people are singing these songs that I'm not really into, this, this whole message thing I, I, I'm not really grabbing with, but there's something here. And, and maybe you believe in God, but you're not so certain about Jesus and you're not so certain about the Bible. Be honest with God. I, I want to challenge you. Just be real with him. Say, God, Father, I believe, I believe you're real. But help my unbelief about Jesus. Help my unbelief about the Bible. Just just be real with him. Be open with him. Be honest with him. Be vulnerable with him. I encourage you. I challenge you. I I, want to press this before you. Open this book. Read the Gospel of John with us. and, And just do this. Before you ever open a page, before you ever read a word, pray this prayer. God Father, show me yourself. Show up for me. Fill in the gaps. What have you got to lose? Where's the risk in that kind of prayer? I mean, if we're honest, you lose maybe a couple minutes. 
Maybe you, you lose a couple hours as you read. But what you could gain, friend, is eternal life. That sounds like an investment worth taking. Pray with me. Father, we love you. And we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. You are a gracious Father. God, I'm so thankful that as a father, you put your arm around us. Just as a friend told me today, you don't point your finger at people, you put your arm around people. And they were talking about somebody else, but oh, how that does not describe you, Father. You don't point the finger at Paul Crandall, but you always seem to put your arm around me. Even when I pray hurtful prayers to you, you and your mercy intervene. Father, you come alongside. You say, Paul, I see your weak faith. I see it's not strong. I'll make it stronger. I'll build you up. I'll continue the work that I started in you. I will bring you to the finish line. You may limp there, but I'll carry you. Oh, Father, thank you for that. Father, I pray for our people right now. Maybe they're limping to the finish line right now. Maybe they have a hard time running, even walking. Father, they feel more like they're crawling right now through life. Father, I pray you'd be with them. I pray that they would give a very vulnerable prayer to you this week. I believe, but help my unbelief. I want, Father, for those that are listening to this who wouldn't yet call themselves a Christian or a follower of Christ, oh, Father, I pray that you'd meet them, that you'd fill in the gaps, that you would show up, that you would honor that prayer, that you'd honor that prayer as they open up the scripture before they read a word, before they journey through the gospel of John, that as they say, Father, show up, that I pray, Father, that you would. I know your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It does not return void. It goes out and accomplishes its purpose. Father, those are promises from your word. Would you do it as they pray? Meet them. And Father, I pray you continue to bring them back in fellowship with us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to journeying through the gospel of John with you next week as well.